guys, go ahead and open your Bible this morning to Philippians chapter 3. We are, um, we're going to be working through Philippians this week and next week. Uh, and then first week in April, we're going to kind of take a break from Philippians. And we're going to be looking at Passover and really doing our best to give some attention, some very uh, necessary attention to the upcoming feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, which will begin sundown April 15th. Uh, just a reminder, we are hosting a community Seder Passover here in the sanctuary on that night, April 15th. If you guys have never experienced that or been a part of that, we, we want this to be part of a, the regular uh, annual calendar, the regular annual schedule of the church because this is for us to observe these appointed times that God put into place um, really at the foundation of the very at the beginning of the world the beginning creation of the world and so um, we want to see and understand the significance of Passover as our spiritual heritage both our spiritual heritage and our spiritual inheritance that which we have been promised to receive in Christ which is the land and a place and a, uh, to be part of God's household to be in his kingdom um, and to have a place to serve him in the kingdom, in the land, underneath the rule and reign of King Jesus. And all of these things are so very important for us. And so beginning in April, we're going to spend some time looking at all the different aspects and elements of Passover, unleavened bread, the, the, uh, the, the waving of the uh, sheaf of first fruits, and how all of that really is connected to Christ. He is always at the center, at the heart of scripture and he's at the heart of the appointed feast of the Lord and that's why I love the appointed feast among other things is because they make us uh, they point us ultimately to Jesus and show us uh, even more um, about his nature and his character uh, than than we may have known before and so anything that points us to Jesus I'm, I'm all for it I think it's it's important for us it's uh, good for beneficial for us so anyway just kind of letting you know we're gonna we're gonna finish up uh, Philippians 3, um, probably next week, or at least get close to finishing Philippians 3. We'll take a little break, and then we'll come back after the season of fast, uh, Passover, uh, probably sometime in May, and pick up and finish the book of Philippians uh, before uh, we get into the season of Pentecost, okay? So, the joy of knowing Christ. This, this is one of my favorite passages in the book of Philippians. It is so very, very profound, and, and we're going to discover some wonderful things in here, I believe, today as we look at Philippians chapter 3. And so when I, when I was preparing this message, uh, the very practical, the, the initial practical application that immediately jumps out to me and, and probably will jump out to you is that we, we pursue so many things in this life that are a waste of time. We... We place priority on so many things and, and pursuits in this life that ultimately, guys, are just a waste of time. And this is the human condition. This is, this is part of our struggle as, as people born into a, a fallen world and a corrupt system that we live in. And we are, by nature, sinners and prone to wonder and to... to um, you know, take our lives into our own hands and begin to make it something that God never intended it to be. And so this is just naturally part of our human condition. So I know it applies to everybody in this room because it applies to me, it applies to you, it applies to everyone because we all struggle with misplaced priorities and misplaced pursuits. And that's really what Paul is he's getting to in this passage of Scripture. And if you remember... Not just the, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden with, with the temptation of, of the, that ancient serpent, Satan, the devil, who's there in the garden with them, and he's tempting them to sin. We see John in the book of 1 John, he gives us kind of a, a synopsis or basically a summary of the, the three main categories of temptation, the three main categories of sin that you can kind of, you can almost place everything underneath these three categories, John tells us. Y'all remember what he said in 1 John? He said, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Those three categories, okay? 
So when we think about the lust of the eyes, what what comes to my mind is covetousness. We look at what we don't have and we are not grateful and we want what other people have. And most of the time it's something that does not belong to us. That's covetousness. It's not being content with what God has given you, with you being content with who you are in Christ and knowing that God is enough and that we don't have to have all of these other things that we see the world out there offering to us. And so when we see the lust of the eyes, obviously this can come in many different forms. And I'm not here to give you a, a, you know, a, a discourse on these three categories of sin or temptation. But nonetheless, the lust of the eyes is, is oftentimes we are, we are pursuing those things that we see with our eyes and that we want with our sinful hearts, but they don't, that God never really intended us to have. Okay? The second one is the, the lust of the flesh, okay? And these are the, the appetites, the carnal appetites of our nature. And, and you, can, you, know, you can put any, any category really underneath these. You've got sexual appetites and uh, fleshly appetites and things like greed. And, um, you know, there, again, there, there's, there's many that, that what I say fall under this, this category of us wanting to gratify the flesh, okay? Um, you think about how much our lives revolve around things like food, Right, right now, you're probably thinking about where we're going to go eat lunch. And then after lunch, we're already thinking about what we're going to make for dinner, right? And it's like those, those appetites that drive, and there's nothing wrong. We, we, we're nat- by nature, we get hungry, right? I mean, our bodies run out of energy. We need more food. We don't live to eat, though, right? We eat to live, right? And so... So the thing about that is is that we have these carnal appetites, these fleshly appetites that are always consistently pulling at us and pulling us away from what is our true pursuit or our true purpose and priority in life. And think about we spend so much time chasing these things that ultimately are empty in the end. And then what we have is called the the pride of life. And, And everything else really just kind of falls under that. And when I when I think about the pride of life, I think about the the status and the symbols and the um, you know the 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 legacy the significance that we put on ourselves and and the the worth that we place on ourselves based on a system in this world that tells us whether or not we're being successful or not that's what the pride of life ultimately ultimately boils down to is that we're measuring ourselves by the wrong standards and so we're looking at our lives and we're saying is my life worth something am I being successful um, you know can I really look at myself as somebody who is has arrived or is achieving what this life is really all about and that's where this category comes into into um, the pursuit of wealth and money the pursuit of power or status as I said maybe it's beauty maybe it's your uh, popularity, maybe it's how smart you are. You want to you want to be perceived as the smartest person in the room, and that's what you kind of put your pride is, is based on your education or your um, your career, uh, your influence, your success. All of these things that are giving us a false sense of significance and self worth. That's what the pride of life is really all about. And so, all of us in this room today, we're struggling with some or more, one or more of these temptations and these sins. It could be that we're living in the lust of the eyes. It could be that we're living in gratifying the the lust of our flesh. We're, we're, We're wrestling, battling that flesh. Or maybe we've put too much stock in our own pride and that we, our identity is basically on, based on the foundation, a faulty foundation that we are, Um, We're something or we're successful or we have arrived simply because of these things that the world has set up for us to measure ourselves by. Okay, and that's and and that's I know that's basic like Christianity 101. We understand that. But but nonetheless, we still struggle with it, don't we? Aren't we still struggling with these things? Yes, I know I do. And I have a I have a good uh, a good reason to believe that you're struggling with these things, too. And this passage of Scripture today it really just cuts through all of that stuff 
reminds us of who we really are and, and what we really have to put our hope and our faith in. And that when we discover that, when we discover that true joy of knowing who we are and knowing Jesus Christ, that ultimately is where we find true joy. We're never going to find joy pursuing these other things in the world. Never going to find it. Now, money and fame and power, it might make you happy for a minute. But if you take all that away, what happens? You take your happiness away. See, happiness, from a, from a worldly perspective, is, is circumstantial. It's temporary. If your happiness is put in any one of these number of things that we're not intended to be, if those things are taken away from us, we lose our what? We lose our happiness. We lose our identity. We lose our worth. We, we lose our purpose. All of those things matter. But joy is not circumstantial. It's not circumstantial. I've told you this before, and I, I learned this firsthand experience at my when we buried my mother I was 21 years old she was only 50 she I'm I'm four, I'm almost 45 years old she was only five years older than I am now when she died saddest day of my life still had what what did I still have in me joy I like God consciously I remember that very day when we walked into the funeral home saddest day of my life and yet there's still joy in my heart there's still joy the presence of God was still felt and I knew then, I understood then what joy really was. It's not circumstantial. It can't be taken away, right? And so that's what this whole passage, when we look at the Apostle Paul today, and we look at if anybody had reason to boast, if anybody had reason to, to put his pride in who he was and to um, put his uh, identity in who he was, it was the Apostle Paul today. And yet he had a life-changing experience that basically knocked all of that stuff out from underneath him so that God could take him from ground zero and start to build him back up again in who he was in Christ. And we all need that. And I think sometimes even after we've come to know Jesus Christ and be, being able to walk with him for many years, sometimes we start to go back to that old way of putting our, our hope and putting our, um, uh, you know, put, putting all of this identity and worth into the things that don't matter. And sometimes God has to what? He has to knock them back down knock us back down, knock those things out from under us again to get us back to himself, right? So it's not a bad thing necessarily when we're brought to the end of ourselves because when we're brought to the end of ourselves, we only have one other, where, one other place to look, and that's where? That's to Jesus, right? And that's what Paul's teaching us right here in Philippians 3. All right, so let's look at the, let's look at the text, and you'll see how all this really kind of shakes out as we go along. So Philippians 3 verse 1 I'm going to read through verse 11. It says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. There's that theme again, finding joy. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate, mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Now Paul is saying, however, if anybody has confidence, I probably do. And so Paul's about to give you kind of his, his profile, okay? Paul's saying, listen, we are not to put any confidence in outward appearances, in, outward, uh, in the flesh, but I have reason, if anybody does, to do that. And so now let's listen to what Paul says about himself. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So what does he say? He says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Again, according to the commandment that the Lord gave Abraham. Prior even to the giving of the Sinai, Sinai, uh, covenant on Mount Sinai, he was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the word of the Lord. Of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. That means he was conservative. He, he believed the word of God, and he, he, he was conservative in his viewpoint of, under, of keeping the law. Um, we, we think the word Pharisee is a bad word. Jesus would probably more have aligned in his theology with the Pharisees than he did the Sadducees, which I think is why Jesus was a lot harder on the Pharisees, because they had the right theology, they just didn't have the right practice 
They didn't have the right heart after God. They had, they had mostly the right theology about God, but they were way off on their heart, right? And we'll see that more in just a minute. But, but Paul was a Pharisee, okay? He was, as to zeal, he was so zealous for wanting to, to honor God. He was so zealous for wanting to uh, represent uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he began to persecute the church. And we know Paul's story back in Acts chapter 8 and 9, and he is, he's leading the charge, persecuting followers of this new, uh, this supposed Messiah at the time that, that was being challenged by the, authority, the, the Jewish leadership and authorities of the time, this Yeshua, this Jesus of Nazareth. And all the, uh, the, the scandal that had, had uh, arisen around his life and his death and his resurrection, and now you have all these people following him saying, Messiah has come. Jesus is the Messiah. We've believed in him. We've seen him. He's been raised from the dead. We know he is uh, the long-awaited Messiah. And Paul was so zealous in stomping out this new faction, this threat to their way of life, that he persecuted the church. He drug people into prison. He put people to death. Uh, he was the lead antagonist, the lead opponent of God's people during this time. He recognizes that. So he was zealous, but his zeal was misplaced. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. What does that mean? It means if you were to examine Paul's life and how he was living his life and keeping Sabbath and keeping the feast and, 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 and tithing and, and doing all the things that he was supposed to do according to the Torah, according to the law, if you, if you had an outward picture of his life and you could really examine his life, I mean, you probably wouldn't find anybody better than Paul at, at doing the right things, right? Doing what he was supposed to do. So he had reason to brag, to feel good about himself because of his zealousness for keeping God's commandments. But we're going to see here in just a minute that it's not, it's not all about the outward keeping of the law. And then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, listen, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Or as the, the popular word in, in my son's generation today is, is trash. Everything bad today, is, that's trash, right? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, everything that I thought that I had and everything that I thought that I was is trash. Doesn't mean a thing. Compared to what? The surpassing knowledge, knowing my Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All right, so i got a couple of things I want to share with you this morning. And the first one is this. God is more concerned with the condition of our hearts than with any misplaced confidence that we may have in our flesh. God's always been more concerned with the condition of our what? Of our hearts. But we live in a world where, again, back to my introduction, we live in a world where so many things in this life, the standards and are measured, and, and measured by what we see on the what? On the outside. The status, the beauty, the, the image, all of the things that we apply to our lives, that, that, that we've propped up in our lives to, to give us a false sense of security, to give us this false sense of worth and success. And it, it, Paul is really cutting to the heart here 
And he's saying, listen, guys, I had every right to be uh, someone who was proud of who he was with my religious pedigree, with my family history, being of the tribe of Benjamin and then a Pharisee and zealous for the law. All these things, if anybody had reason to brag, if anybody had reason to feel confident and secure in who I was, it was me. That's what Paul's saying. He says that it's worthless. Because what was wrong with Paul? He had, a bad, he had something wrong with his what? His heart. How, how far away was Paul's heart from God? He was doing all the right things, right? We're not going to argue that. He was doing all the right things. He had done everything right, but he's out there killing God's people. That's how far away from God he was. He's out there leading the charge to persecute believers and followers of his own Messiah that obviously he had rejected, he did not recognize when he first came. And so we see that God's always been more concerned with the condition of our hearts than with misplaced confidence in our flesh. Look at what Paul says. He's, he's reminding the church at Philippi, okay, watch out for these, these opponents of mine who he's calling the mutilators of the flesh. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail about what's happening here in the backstory, okay? But if we, if we follow and track the life of the Apostle Paul, he had many opponents and many, many challengers to his ministry, First of all, he probably had people who were very hesitant to really believe that he had turned and had become a leading witness for the Lord Jesus Christ because of where he came from as being a leading murderer and opponent of the church and of the, of the people of God and, and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there were probably some people who were, first off, they were hesitant. There were other people who were coming in claiming to be apostles, coming behind Paul's back. So he would go plant churches, he would make disciples, he would begin to build the ministry there, then he would go on to the next uh, place on his map. But then people would come behind him, and they were claiming to have greater authority than Paul, and they were teaching their, these churches false doctrine. So we had to deal with some of that. And then you had a group of zealous Jews who were called of the circumcision party, and this comes up in Acts chapter 15, and if you guys go back and read Acts 15, the, the church is confronted with how do we deal with these, with these zealous uh, zealots who were called the, the party of the circumcision, who were basically telling people that in order for you to be saved, in order for you to, to trust in Messiah, you first had to be what? You had to be circumcised. Because that was the sign of the covenant of God's people, the people Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was a commandment from God. And yet you have all of these people who are from the Gentile nations who have nothing to do with that original uh, commandment to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because they were outside of that family. They were outside of that ethnic group, right? We're talking about nations, Gentiles. And they're coming to faith in Jesus. They're hearing the good news of the gospel. And then uh, they're, they're hearing Paul and and Timothy and uh, Peter and John and all of the apostles and they're sharing the good news of the gospel and, and the Gentiles are coming to faith in record numbers. The, 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 the early church, the apostles are amazed at what God is doing. They're like, oh, whoa, now we understand. It's, it's not just for the, the ethnic people of Israel. It's for the whole world. It's for the nations. That, that Messiah, just like God promised to Abraham, your seed will bless all the nations of the earth, right? And they're seeing this happen and then there's this group that comes along later, and they're telling all of these Gentiles, hey, y'all are still dirty dogs. See, in order for you to really be part of the team, yeah, we know that you, you were told all you had to do was trust in Jesus, and you would be saved, and the Holy Spirit would come upon you, which had happened. But now we're going we're gonna to add another condition to your salvation. First, you have to be what? First, you got to be circumcised. Mutilators of the flesh. And then we can talk. And it was causing tremendous controversy. Because as you can imagine, as, as grown adult men, Gentile men, they're like, what are you talking about? I'm not willing to do that. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not really ready to, to be circumcised, you know, if that's really what it's going to take. And it was a false doctrine. It was a false gospel. And the church made it clear in Acts chapter 15 that Gentiles are not required to be circumcised before they could come to faith in Jesus Christ, right? So, so that's very important, and that's what Paul's talking about here. And he calls these people mutilators of the flesh. And so we know that Paul also says in Romans 2 that circumcision, okay, when we're talking about circumcision, we're talking about just the, 
the, um, the fleshly act of circumcision, okay, it counts for nothing. It counts for nothing. What God is more concerned about is the circumcision of our what? Of our hearts. Now, let's find out what that means because I think it's important. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'm going to take you all the way back to Torah. So since we understand that the law is very profitable, we're going to see where the Lord reminds his people who were called to be circumcised, again, as a sign of their inclusion into this covenant people, the Lord knew from the very beginning, just because you've been cut has nothing to do with your heart. Look at, look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 12 and following. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? Pretty good question, right? Remember, Malachi asked the same thing, right? What does the, the Lord require of you? Love mercy, to do justice, to walk humbly with your God. Look at what the Lord says here. That you would fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart. There it is, right? Your heart, love, and with all of your soul, and to keep his commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Again, what does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it is about a love relationship. Notice the Lord hasn't said anything here about being physically circumcised. That's not what the Lord requires of you, okay? He's, he's taking this to a, to a whole other level of obedience. He says, behold, the Lord your God, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in it, verse 15, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Verse 16. Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Of your heart. And be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great and mighty awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So here we see the Lord reminding us that all the way from the very beginning, when God entered into covenant with the, the children of Israel, yes, they were commanded to, to be circumcised, but God was far more concerned with the condition of their heart. Because you remember the, the children of Israel who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? Guess what? They wandered in the wilderness because of the condition of their what? Their hearts. That's what this was all about. And so the Lord is always going to be more concerned with that, guys. Now look real quick to Romans chapter 2 because Paul gives us another um, reminder here. He, he, this is actually a topic that comes up quite often when you begin reading uh, the scriptures. But I want to look at, I want to look at Romans 2.25. You want to flip there with me. And again, same author, now Paul is writing, he's reminding us again, what is the purpose of our relationship with God? What is the foundation of that? Verse 25 in Romans 2, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Okay? So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, important, interesting, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the what? Heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And what's, what's Paul saying? Again, I don't really care 
what your outward appearance looks like. You may have taken every proper step in the religious rituals that are laid out and prescribed for you, but if you don't have the right heart before God, it means nothing to him. And you can have a heathen Gentile out here who has nothing to do with being circumcised, nothing to do with being identified with the people of God, and yet if he's keeping the law, he's better off than you are. So what, is it, what does this really get boiled down to? It's very obvious, guys. God is always just wanting to know what's the condition of our hearts. And so I'm just going to ask you a question. How's your heart today? How's our heart? Some of us may be in the room today. We've never received a new heart. The scriptures are clear. That what is required is that in order for us to enter into a relationship through the new covenant, through the new covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have to have a new what? A new heart. So when we're living in a life of rebellion and sin, the Bible tells us that our heart is like a heart of stone. It's cold. It's unchangeable. It's rigid. Right? It's not, it's not beating. It's not alive. It's, it's, just, it's just there. But when we come to know Jesus, he gives us a heart of flesh. In other words, and I know that it kind of seems weird because you, you, we think flesh being a bad thing. But what he's saying is, is that our heart comes what? It comes alive. It starts beating. It starts pumping blood. It's, it's, it, it gives us, you know, it's malleable in the hands of the Lord. It, it softens up. That's what he's talking about. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, guys, we literally, we receive a heart transplant. And some of us are sitting in the room today. Some of us may be watching from uh, home today. And you may be sitting there and you're just cold. You're just hard towards God. And you don't really understand why maybe. And maybe you've never received a new heart. Maybe you've never received that heart transplant. That only God gives us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But that's just the first step, right? That's just, that's what we call regeneration. That, that means we, we become born again. And yes, we get this new heart. But then as believers in Jesus and as followers in Jesus Christ, as we go throughout life, then what happens? We still begin to allow sin to take root where? In our heart. And once that little root is established in our heart, what does a root do? starts to grow and it starts to grow bigger like a weed like a like a uh, an ugly bush that's not supposed to be there and if we're not careful we let that sin begin to grow and grow and grow and grow until it begins to kind of choke out that heart remember Jesus talked about this as well that the the the, the, the cares of the world and the pursuits of this world and sin kind of starts to choke us out even as believers, right? We've already got a new heart, but that, yet that new heart is starting to become contaminated with sin. And if we're not careful, guys, our hearts become uncircumcised and we've got to cut all that excess stuff, what? Out and away. That's what he's talking about here. And so when we have a heart for God, there are some measurements. I do think the proper measurements are this. And I'll just give you a few. If our hearts are right for God, listen, we're going to love God. We're going to want to serve him. We're going to want to obey his commandments. We're going to, we're going to love his word. How many of you have a very healthy Bible study uh, relationship with the Lord right now? Like where you're just, you just can't wait to get into the word of God. But some of us, we had not been in the word really in days, weeks, maybe months. Maybe what you get here in church, maybe you, you listen to something every once in a while. But I'm talking about really loving the word of God because we're, that's where God's heart is revealed to us. That's where we hear from God. That's where we get to spend time with God. But many of us, guys, our hearts aren't right and we don't have a love for the word of God. That's a problem. A believer should have a, a passion and a love for the word of God. A believer should love the people of God. That's why you're here. Because you should love the people of God. You should love the coming together and the gathering together of God's people. You should love the glory of God, the purposes of God. All of these things are just very simple measurements of where we are. And listen, at the end of the day, guys, we all know where we are. We do. 
if we take a long enough time just to stop and really start to look and, and examine our hearts and ask God to really show us where our hearts are, many of us probably have some, have some confessing to do, some repenting to do. Because our hearts are very easily contaminated with sin, and that's what Paul's talking about here, okay? So again, what's your heart like with God? I can't tell you where you are. I'm asking you to please just be honest with yourself and with the Lord, okay? And so we want this circumcision of the heart, this cleansing of our hearts, and that's what God is more concerned about than anything else. Number two, question. So Paul, he gets it. He knows that all of his outward appearances, they mean really nothing to God. He's all about our heart. But then, and then Paul is like, everything that I used to think was important, it's trash. It's rubbish. It doesn't count for anything. And that made me think about the question that Jesus asked us. What does it profit us if we gain the whole world and lose your soul? Something that really... Uh, boggles me a little bit is when I look at a lot of these billionaires out there you know who they are you know your Bezoses and Zuckerbergs and Soroses and the Davos Foundation and and you know Klaus Schwab and, and the World Economic Forum this all these billionaires you know uh, what's the Tesla guy Elon Musk, I mean, all these guys, I mean, they're just ultra wealthy. I mean, they're just so, Bill Gates, they're so wealthy and rich. And I'm not here to, to make a judgment on, on their condition and their heart, but, but I, I'm making a pretty educated guess that these people are not God-fearing people. I'm just making an educated, I've never heard them confess Christ or really want to spread the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. It seems like to me they have their own agenda, they have their own lifestyle. But here's my question, how rich is rich enough? How much money do you have to have to be satisfied? And these people, again, if they're pursuing this ultra wealth and whatever it is that they're, they're trying to take the world in a whole different direction, which I believe they're trying to take our world in a completely different direction. I'm not here to tell, tell you what that is today. But at the end of the day, if they have all the money and all the power in all the world and they die, what have they really gained? And guess what? They're going to die. They're trying not to. They're trying to find a different way around transhumanism into immortality. and They're trying to do that. We know that. But they're going to die, and yet they have spent their entire lives trying to pursue things that are going to just completely dissolve, and they're going to completely just fade away in the end. And so that's what I want to challenge you today, guys. What, what do you not have that you need? I mean... It, what can you get out of this world that even begins to compare to having a relationship with Jesus Christ, knowing that when you die, which we're going to die, that we get him, that we get to go to be in his presence, that we get to have eternal life with Christ, whether or not we had everything in this world or not. But we still get caught up in that. Even as believers, we still get caught up in pursuing these things that are rubbish, they're trash, they're, they're, they're empty. And so Paul was willing to give up everything that he had from a worldly perspective, from a world, because Paul lost his, his uh, status in the Jewish community. I'm sure he lost friends. I'm sure he lost his reputation. I mean, Paul lost everything. But man, he was so much better off. He gained even more, right? That's what Jesus said. If you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you will what? You're going to find it. You will find it. You will find happiness. You will find contentment. You will find joy if you're willing to leave the world behind and follow me, right? So that's, that's the next thing that, that I see in this passage. Paul saying, I will consider everything as loss. And I just want to ask you, what is more valuable to you today than knowing Jesus Christ? Is there anything more valuable? It's not. Now, as we continue on, I do want to make a mention of this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but we see that God's more concerned with your heart than he is with your, you know, your confidence in your flesh or your outward appearance or your achievements in life or whatever it may be, that we have a far greater reward in knowing Christ than it was for us to gain the whole world here, okay? And the next thing is that, that we, there are benefits. One of the many benefits of the law is to make us aware of our sin and our need for a righteous Savior, 
and, and I, I like to bring attention to this real quickly, guys, because I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I've talked about this before. But for so many years, I feel like we've done a poor job as the church in understanding what the purposes of the law really are. You see, in passages like this, we, we, we have a tendency to read this and say, okay, grace is good, law bad. Paul just told us, you know, hey, if you're trying to achieve righteousness through the law, then, you know, it's pointless. You're not ever going to do it. I was trying to do it. It didn't work. He's saying, but I have a righteousness through faith, and that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we look at that and we say, you see, Paul even said it. You know, it's all about faith. Law's bad. He didn't say that. The law is what? It's not bad. It's what? The law is good. It's perfect. Nothing wrong with the law, okay? What's wrong is us. Our ability to what? Keep the law. That's, that, therein lies the rub. Therein lies the problem. It's not that the law is bad. The law is good. Matter of fact, when Jesus came into the world, he perfectly kept the what? The law on our behalf. It was very important that he did that because all of us have fallen short. Every single human who's ever tried, we're not going to be able to attain righteousness or good standing with God because of what we've done. Because even if we stumble at just one part of the law, we become a lawbreaker, which means that we've basically broken what? All of it. Once you become a lawbreaker, you're a lawbreaker. It doesn't matter which law you break, you're a lawbreaker, right? You're a criminal. We're a criminal in God's court. We need a righteous Savior to come take our place, which is what Jesus Christ did. But guys, the law is a benefit in our life. And so don't forget that. God's law, it's good. It is his measuring line. It is his standard. It is the beginning of how we understand how to relate to him and each other. And so don't just throw the, bath, the baby out with the bathwater, right? That's what I'm trying to help you see here. We need to know the law. We need to, to do our best to keep the law because Jesus said, listen, if you love me, you're going to keep it. You're going to want to obey my commandments. And so Paul is not saying that he just is forsaking the law. He's saying he realized that he couldn't keep the law in order to attain righteousness before God. He was trying to do it, but he failed at that. And God had to show him his utter, um, what's the word I'm looking for, his depravity. The Lord had to show him that to get his attention so that then Paul came to know Jesus, who he was, put his faith in Messiah, who is our law keeper. And it is through that relationship that Paul continued to keep the law, knowing that he didn't have to. But man, he sure wanted to. Because he loved who? Because he loved Jesus. And that's the way we should relate to the law too. You don't have to keep it. You don't. That's not going to change your standing with God. But it might break fellowship. When you sin against God, it may, it may cause a, a breach in the relationship. And there's consequences to sin. So we don't have to keep it, but we what? We want to keep it, right? Just want to make sure that we're clear about that. All right, now let's look at the last point, and this is where we're going to wrap it up. We have no greater joy in life. This is your last point. We have no greater joy in life than to know Jesus Christ in a personal relationship, to enjoy his presence, embrace his promises, and experience the profound power of his resurrection. That's a mouthful. I'm going to break it down to you real simple. Our mission statement I love it. Christ's church exists to know Christ and to what? To make him known. How much simpler could it get? Very, very simple. In the gospel, it's simple, guys. Now, it doesn't say Christ, our mission statement in Paul, that we're not saying we exist to know about Jesus. A lot of people know about him. Whole different ballgame to what? To know him. To know him. I want you to think in familiar terms. A husband and a wife have intimate relationship. Exclusive. Right? Now, I may know your wife, and you may know my wife, and you may know someone else's husband, and that husband may not. We know about people. We may have, you know, relationships with other people but when it comes to that covenant relationship of marriage it's only for that husband and that wife and there's intimacy there and you truly become one with that person exclusive relationship as one that's what Paul's talking about here 
I'm not interested about how much you know about Jesus. Even the demons believe. The demons have good theology. The devil has good theology. I'm going to say it this way. The devil knows Jesus probably a lot better than we do. He's been around a lot longer. But what I'm talking about is not do you know about Jesus, but do you what? Do you know him? Are you in an exclusive personal relationship with the God of the universe that has been offered to you through the revealing of the Son of God, Jesus Christ? That's what Paul's talking about. To know Christ and to make him known. Now, I want to say this one thing before I go. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 10, he says that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection. Now, that's an interesting concept. The power of his resurrection. Now, in a sense, we have received and experienced the power of God's resurrection. And let me explain how. Once we were lost, once we were dead, now we've been found. Now we're what? Alive. As sinners separated from the, from the, the God of creation, the king of the universe, there's only one way we can be brought back and restored into relationship with our creator and our king, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ who actually gives us his spirit. So the spirit of God is that down payment, is he's that deposit. And what happens at salvation, or what we call regeneration, guys, is fascinating, is that we receive a new spirit. We, we become spiritually alive. In other words, we experience what we would understand as resurrection power. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to see rainbows and shooting stars going through the air and you're going to wake up floating out of your bed and everything's going to be great and everything's going to be, you know, problem free for the rest of your life. That's not what having a relationship with Jesus is about. We understand that. But there should be something radically different in your spirit. You should be spiritually transformed. That's what Paul's saying, that we have resurrection power. But it's only partial. Because none, none of us, not even the saints of old, have experienced the true power of the resurrection yet. When is that going to happen? That happens at the return of Christ, at the resurrection of the dead, okay, when we receive glorified new bodies and God recreates all of the universe and everything is made new. That's when Adam gets his new body. That's when Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and David and all the saints of old, that's when they get their true new body. That's when they experience the power the full power of the resurrection. It's called the revealing of the sons of God. Romans 8 talks about that. That's when we get to experience the true power of the resurrection. But Paul is holding on to the promise that there's coming a day when he will be raised up like Christ. Did y'all catch that? He's saying, I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death so that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we're still here in this world journeying through a very difficult experience, a very difficult life. And guys, we suffer. And it's hard. And we struggle. We get heartbreak and disappointment and sick. We suffer and we die. And Paul is saying, you know what? I can come to know Jesus even more through that suffering, I can come to know Jesus even more through my struggle. I can even come to know Jesus more through dying. Because he died. He's been there. So when we identify with Jesus through these difficulties and the sufferings and struggles and even death itself, that's only so that we can come to what? Know him more. And if we exist to know him and to make him known, then that's what life's all about. And Paul is reminding us today that even though we struggle through the, the fire and we struggle through the suffering, it's that personal relationship. It's the promises that God has and will keep in our lives that we will one day be raised, glorified just as he is, to be like him. And this is what's amazing. 
Let me, let me see if I can find I'm going to finish right here. I'm going to ask our praise team to come up. I want to read one more scripture because this is uh, fascinating. I think it's 1 Corinthians 13. hope this is the right passage. But this is the, the love chapter, right? He says, let me find it here. Listen to this. For now we see in a mirror dimly or a glass darkly. But then we will see what? Face to face. Okay? Now listen. Now I know in part, but then, and I believe he's talking about the day of the resurrection, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. As we wrap this message up, guys, here's the one, the one question I think gets cut to the heart of everything that I've shared with you today. I'm not as concerned today with whether or not you know Jesus. What's the better question? What happens? We're having a seizure. Hey, Brian, what do we need to do, man? guys will y'all just touch somebody and uh, we're going to pray Father God please be with Brendan right now Lord Jesus Lord take him out of this get him out of this seizure Father please Lord just have mercy upon him in Jesus name we just lift him up to you Lord and give him to you right now have mercy Lord in Jesus name Amen Hey guys, I guess with with the circumstances right now, we got to make sure Brendan's taken care of. He, he's he's had these seizures before.